Steve and Kevin review Dominaria United for Vintage on episode 107 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 107 of So Many Insane Plays, our Dominaria United review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. As for announcements this episode, we don't have a lot. I did want to just point out to everyone that we don't have any news for or against regarding Eternal Weekend this year, which, as I've said many times before, is I presume I mark against, and I presume we're not going to get an Eternal Weekend in person hosted by Card Titan until 2023. It would seem very late for that announcement. Yeah, Yeah, it would be. I mean, I know the event has, has a bit of a history of announcing things late, sadly enough. But, but not this late. Not this late. No, yeah. It's it's pretty Re- pretty much a sure me, thing. Remind me Kevin, the last cycle of Eternal Weekend events was there one, a separate one in Europe and a separate one in Asia? Gosh, I don't remember if it was the very last one that was separate in Europe and Asia, but of the last two or three it was. Okay. I, I so can't recall how that petered out going into If there was lockdown. going to be an Eternal Weekend in the United States or North America, then presumably be a corollary one in Japan or whatever. <sighs> Yes, I think that's reasonable. At the same time, so much has been disrupted that who knows? I mean, I don't even know if those uh, those international TOs have retained the rights to even do so. Who knows? Okay. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's way too much uncertainty in that arena for me to even really comment. <clears throat> I would hope that the target well, state includes a return to form, but so much about Magic's large event hosting has not returned to exact form that, um, I don't know. Well, the reason I brought it up is that it might present a clue as to what the future is, right? If there was a True. Turtle Weekend scheduled in Japan, then presumably there would be one scheduled or at least discussed for scheduling for North America. Yeah, well, that is a reasonable conclusion. I've heard no news for or against, which, again, is news against almost certainly. But let's talk about something that is happening, and that's Magic 30. We talked about it a fair bit last episode, and it turns out I think you have pulled the trigger and committed to go. So is that true, and what are you planning to do? I am. I'm excited. I'm flying in Thursday and leaving Sunday. I am am assiduously avoiding the um, larger, more mainstream events and competitive tournaments. Okay. Uh, I am scheduled to play in the Friday 8 p.m. 93-94 I'm playing in the Saturday 12 p.m. Vintage and then the Saturday 9 p.m. 93-94. And I think and hope that the way I've scheduled this, I will be able to attend Richard Garfield's um, panel. Although now that I'm thinking about it, I, I think it might, I hope it doesn't overlap with the Vintage event. The Vintage That would be uh, cool. Event. I hope yeah. it works. Yeah. So... It's going to be exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. Mostly, I'm I've got my decks ready to go. Um, it's been a bit of a uh, uh, an odyssey to 
make sure I have every card and paper that I have. You know, my collection, my vintage collection on Magic Online is up to date, but I have to make sure I have every card I need for. <laughs> you know, I've got to get a copy of Fury, for example, in paper and if I want to play that. You know, there's a, just a lot of corner case cards I need. You know, there hasn't been a paper event for vintage that I've have it. You know, a sanctioned event at least where I couldn't proxy something in years. So <laughs> I need. I've got it. I've been carefully picking up things. You know that I have left funny. to some future date. Um, I think I only own three Urza Sagas, so I've got to get a fourth. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I may need another Ragavan if I'm going to play that. Anyway, there's a bunch of things i got to pick up. Um, I'm good, of course, on 93-94. I've got that ready to go. Yeah. I will definitely play play some Alpha as well. A number of the Alpha League guys are going to be showing up, so really looking forward to it. It should be a lot of fun. Mostly, though, you know, since these are three-round events, it's mostly just for the hang, so... Looking forward to seeing folks and hanging out after so many years. Yeah. Not seeing folks. Yeah. Well, I wish you success in all those goals combined, and I think you're you're well positioned. I would be in a similar boat with you if I were forced to try and play a paper event now with a, a, a current deck that I am several sets behind on acquiring cards. <laughs> and I play EDH, too, so it's not like, I mean, I have some, some Urza Sagas, I just don't have four non-foil ones, <laughs> which would be appropriate yes. to play with. There's yes. Several things along those lines. <laughs> That is the boat I'm in. <laughs> well, good luck. Any other uh, announcements or content that you want to speak to before we move yes, in? Yes, actually. Um, I'm really pleased to announce that Eternal Central is sort of back up and running. Now the pandemic is... The editors there have been publishing my content. I got a fun um, gimmick deck article on Alpha League Up that's just recently published on a pl- the Plague Rat deck versus the Banalish Hero deck and some yeah. other gimmick decks. And also... Um, just the gush book has been, you know, all that is, is back up and running. If you were trying to get one this summer, the site was off and down. And I've been told that we're back on the, on the, back in the saddle, so to speak, getting edits to my history of vintage book. So I think those are going to be done probably by the end of the year and hopefully we'll get, get that together. So I'm really excited to announce that. Start checking out, you know, the site, Eternal Central, and you'll see a lot of updates, including our show. I think is being published at a at a faster and more regular clip. <laughs> That's right. So, all I, good news. I enjoyed your Alpha Forty article. Was disappointed that you didn't end up using the eighteen twenty two Playgrats deck and picture. <laughs> is the video? Is the photo? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to use the one that I actually played with. But oh, yes, I respect the fact that this version is more modern. <laughs> <laughs> more modern, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Um. And in that vein, Kevin, we have also updated my timeline of vintage. Mm. So it hadn't been updated since like February of 2021. So <laughs> now it has been updated for the last year and a half. So I'm really happy that that is live. So and again, what what is that? The timeline of vintage has, it's a list of essentially every vintage format, meaning every additional set that creates additional card, legal cards, changes the card pool, or expands the card pool, every banned and restricted list, announcement change every major errata and every rules change like the mulligan changes in sixth edition and 10th edition and so forth so um it's this is uh it's been updated and also has a note on sort of the a description of what the metagame was like so check that out bookmark that timeline for vintage and share that with your friends and buddies it's a fascinating artifact all right shall we dive into our report card 
I'm excited to hear the results. <laughs> we are. It's a bit of a return to form for us, as our audience knows. We had a grand disruption in the way our show flowed over the course of the last few years, but we're back to it to a point now where we where we are reviewing a set more than three months after a previously reviewed set. And so let's talk about our report card <laughs> for Streets of New Capenna. We didn't end up reviewing a lot of cards for this set, Steve, uh, as you may well know. But there are a few hitters on how, here. How many cards did we actually end up reviewing? So if you count the Triomes as a single entity, which we did in yes. our review, then the total is eight. And so there are several cards, as usual, that we review mostly for historical reference and or expectation setting with the audience. And this is no different this time. So for the likes of Errant Street Artist, all of the Triomes professional face breaker and offer you can't refuse and scheming fence we predicted zero and the, the result was zero but for all the three cards that we did predict play for there was play and our our predictions this time were actually very very quality nice. so for ledger shredder steve you predicted 12 i predicted 10 the actual was nine. Oh, so we came in very close on ledger shredder congratulations that ledger shredder play is almost entirely in blue white stoneforge lists that were popularized about that time when the card was released. Since then, it has become a bit more diverse, played in a handful of more different shells, like Blue-Red Tinker shells and Esper PO and a few other creative places. But the Blue-White Stoneforge lists were quite consistent in how it made its hay. Why do you think this did so well? I mean, it's not like they're lacking for two drops. Why, why is this... What role does this fill? What position <laughs> or niche does this fill? I think, that, to my eyes, there was so much consistency in those lists. To my eyes, it is a way to, as we discussed in our review, of course, maximize Moxon, right? So that you can have the highest expected chance of having an aggressive threat on the first turn that you can then defend. But also, I think there's just an incredible amount of synergy with having, with what you pull off of a Stoneforge and the, the Shredder itself. In that, the Shredder wears equipment incredibly well, being given that it's flying and evasive. And so it's very difficult to block. And the types of equipment that we play in Vintage are the sort that win games if you start to hit with them once or one or more times, either literally via Cauldra or figuratively with Sword of Fire and Ice. And so there's a good mix of aggro and, and control there. And I think the other reason is simply that you have an additional threat in Stoneforge Mystic that is uh, provides you with additional cards in hand. And sometimes yeah. there, there are several games involving Ledger Shredder where you just need material in order to finish the job, right? The thing has triggered two or three or four times. It now has four or five power. You don't need it to wear a big sword to finish the game. So sometimes it's just having access to material and you can use your mana in other ways. And so I think it's just, I think it's just a quality synergy package combined with giving that archetype blue-white um, just that little nudge of card selection that it needs. Nice. Yeah. Now, that's, it's not, uh, at the moment, this is list, so this is leading up into June and July, right? This, this time period we're reviewing here. At the moment, that blue-white Stoneforge deck has fallen by the wayside. But it's not like the environment has become incredibly hostile to it. It's just, it's not necessarily at, at its best against bazaars, for example. So that's right. the environment we find ourselves <laughs> in now. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. So 9, you predicted 10, I predicted 12. Yeah. So. Does it have any recent results, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, it continues to put up results. And like I said, the blue, the blue white Stoneforge lists are no longer the standard or the go to which they were in the, the early months. And, and so, yeah, it's less 
popular now, but still showing up. I right. think it's can I think you, it's an option in perpetuity, honestly, until something yeah. really glacial changes. So get it for your binders. I believe so. Yes. Definitely. Is it, it for an uncommon? Long no, it's rare. It's rare. Yeah. Okay. Next up is unlicensed hearse. This is the most numerous player for the format. Steve, you predicted 13. I predicted 16. The actual was 20. 20 for unlicensed hearse. A little more popular than we expected. But I would point out that this correlated with a rise in workshop aggro during this overlapping in the same period. And that contributed a bit to the uh, the undershoot, I think, on our part. We weren't anticipating that workshop aggro would have a spike in popularity and dominance. This card appeared almost exclusively in workshop aggro. And the couple of exceptions are... Well, there's only like two exceptions out of the 20. The interesting thing I noted when reviewing this data was that almost all of the um, the appearances of unlicensed hearse occurred in both the main and the side. Not wow. a lot of cards exhibit that pattern. No. The first couple of weeks that people were feeling things out, so there was one here or maybe all four spread about, that kind of thing. But after a couple of weeks and Workshop Aggro came kind of crested a wave of a standardized build, it was two main, one side consistently. Wow. And it's really, really interesting to me that these kind of things, I think maybe there's a little bit of groupthink going on, right? People see a Copying, deck trending and just copy it. That, emulating. That, yeah, that kind of thing happens. But the standard was really strong and set for quite a while on this. And similar to Ledger Shredder, I firmly believe that Unlicensed Hearse is a staple for the foreseeable future. Great. The last card with appearances was... By, by the way, 21 is a lot. Is that what you said? 20. 20. That's a big number. It, it's that, a I mean, that's like more number. than Gristlebrand was when Gristlebrand first <laughs> released. I'm serious. I'm not uh, joking. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's the, the intersection of a what becomes a staple card in an archetype and the ascent of that archetype during that time period in Workshop Aggro. Yeah. This sort of consensus dynamic yeah. at, at play. Yep. That's a big number, though. 20 is a big number. It's, it's worth stating that that, I mean, back when we started this operation with the data sets we were using back then, you know, 20 is the sort of card we would have we'd have clamored about for quite a while. <laughs> so the last card that saw play from Streets is Tainted Indulgence. I don't know if you remember, Steve. You no. predicted two. I predicted one. The actual was two. So you nailed that ah! one spot on. <laughs> well, remind me what that card was. Tainted Indulgence is the, the two mana blue-black draw spell where you only get two cards if you've got five mana costs in your discard pile. Remember, it's the no, I don't. Yeah, well, it's really narrow and niche, and both appearances were by Discoverin in Doomsday as a one of. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's just another way to, uh, you know, to to break into Start a Doomsday pile. pile. Yep. While yeah. having a, a different kind of cantrip, and Doomsday, as we discussed in our review, is the sort of deck that can, um, that can have a, a reasonable expectation of having a diversity of mana costs in the graveyard to get the max value out of the thing, even in an early game scenario. Definitely. So if you yeah. Doomsday, and if you if you resolve the Doomsday with the Force of Will and Doomsday in the graveyard, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you're almost there, right? You get to draw two. So. And it's worth noting that the, the way the card is structured is you always draw two, it's just whether or not you need to keep two. And so it has extra value in terms of breaking into a Doomsday pile in that... You always get two cards deep. Nice. Which not, as you know, not a lot of cantrips do that no. exactly that way. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our report card of Streets of New Capenna. Let's talk that's about it. That's, that's it. it. That's the whole thing. Oh well, man. Let's move on and talk about some Dominaria United.
As we like to do when reviewing new sets, we like to focus first on mechanics. Dominaria United is no exception for new and returning mechanics like most sets these days. And it's got some classics here, like Kicker, like Love Domain. Kicker. Oh yeah. But it also has a couple of new ones that are pretty noteworthy, although less so for Vintage. And this one here I want to talk with you about specifically, Steve. It's called Enlist. So Enlist says that as a creature attacks, you can tap a non-attacking creature that you control. It doesn't have summoning sickness. And when you do, you add its power to the creature that's attacking. So some creature within list can enlist a, another creature that's nearby, that, that not one that just came into play, but and, uh, and carry their power into battle. It is, as R&D has said, the modern implementation of banding. Wow. G- give me the specific rules text on how enlist works. Make sure I understand. As this creature attacks, yes. you may tap a non-attacking creature you control without summoning sickness. When you do, add its power to this creature until end of turn. Obviously, it doesn't have the breadth of banding. Banding you can do on defense. So That's right. Yeah. Wow. The modern, (laughs) almost 30 years later, let's try and fix (laughs) banding. (laughs) And um, in doing so, they they basically, they had to simplify it a lot, right? This does not have all the tricks of banding and therefore doesn't have all the complexity of banding. But that said, it's it's fun how you can band a creature as we've said many times like in alpha card 40 even it's fun how you can gain advantages through scale with banding you can't really do that here it's really yeah. just one person carrying someone else's power into battle like a coat yeah you can't then distribute the the damage that's across. right that's right yeah. that's really where a lot of the power in banding comes from right you like band a one one that's why all the one banding creatures are one one that's right because they can all <laughs> punch can, up yep they punch up and then they they take all the all the damage yeah. So, well, I, needless to say, this mechanic really need not apply in vintage. Even if there was a really great creature that had enlist, it would probably not be because it had enlist, unless there was some other combo tastic thing, to, and then they just didn't do that. Next up is read ahead. Read ahead is a, a funny one, in that it is a modification to another existing mechanic, and that is sagas. So, sagas came out with the original um, Dominaria, and so they're returning to them for flavor reasons here. But read ahead says, choose a chapter and start with that many lore counters and then add one after your draw after that. So the skipped track, the ch- sorry, the skipped chapters don't trigger. So they've you structured more choices. Yeah, they've I- structured these sagas such that if you want to invest more, you get the longer term benefit with one with two or three chapters. But that the, the final chapter usually is the one that has a little more immediate impact. And sometimes you might want it immediately. And I think that's pretty cool. They still haven't made a, a good vintage playable saga here, but they can all be modern masters too. And then the last new thing is more of a codification of something that previously existed, and that is stun counters. So a stun counter is simply a physical representation of effect we already had, which is that it um, the, the, the permanent in, in question doesn't untap during your, uh, well, and this usually opponents <laughs> untap step. But the way it's formalized, it says you put X stun counters on a creature, and if a permanent with a stun counter would become untapped, remove one stun counter from it instead. It's noteworthy, Steve, that we uh, this kind of evokes episode one of so many insane plays because this is one way, or at least a, a reframing of one way in which Time Vault was administered for a while with the t- with the with the token and. 
it's it's very feasible that if stun counters had existed already, Time Vault could have been implemented with stun counters. Um, but obviously, you have a great history there. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's not let's not remind ourselves about about that right now. We'll get- Quickly diverted. That's right. Uh, for the benefit of our audience, if you're quite interested in what I've just said in the history of Time Vault's construction, including the temporary and ill-advised version that was implemented with tokens or counters on the card to track whether or not there was a turn stored up in there, go back to episode one of our show. I think you can find it in the archive on some on uh, Eternal Central. So anyway, those are the mechanics returning anew of Dominaria United. Now let's dive into some cards. First up, we have one Anointed Peacekeeper. For two dub, it's a human cleric. It's a 3-3. Vigilance. As Anointed Peacekeeper enters the battlefield, look in an opponent's hand. Then choose any card name. Spells your opponent's cast with the chosen card name cost two more to cast. Activated abilities of sources with the chosen card name cost two more to activate, unless they're mana abilities. So, another in a line of fun two dub disruptive creatures that may be slightly above stats for a, a hate bear since this is a 3-3 and we've got some effects here that we've seen before right the look at yep. their hand and make it more expensive thing we've seen before like an elite spellbinder though it didn't really come into play much in vintage but the look at their hand and make some permanent not work is that's well-trod ground in vintage basically we just never had it at quite this cost and with quite this structure is that what what cards what cards fit that well, I'm thinking of uh, um, um, Sorcerer's Spyglass, right? Yes. Sorcerer's definitely. Spyglass, where you get to look and choose. This is kind of the similar effect, except it's that look and choose effect. Instead of disabling the permanent, it, you get the suppression field effect, right? Or the Leonin so, Arbiter. That's right. So you've got the, the selective suppression field, kind of the selective Leonin Arbiter here. It's nice that it applies to spells and permanents, right? So if you name, it's yes. worth noting that if you name a permanent card, like you name Time Vault, it's going to cost them four to cast and two to activate. So you're yeah. slowing it in both senses. That's that's noteworthy, I think. Right. I was I was trying to think. So to get maximum value here, logically, it's something that you, you need something that has probably multiple activations that really make this like necropotence, right? <laughs> Would be a real yeah. pain in the butt with this. Or obviously we're, nec- we're activating it the first time. It's just prohibitive, right? Naming a, a fetch land, for example, because you can name... It says you choose any card name. You can choose lands here. Yes, you can. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I mean, the thing that I'm stuck on is they, we already have cards like Mesmeric Fiend, where you can kind of have a duress effect comes into play. Yep. We already have cards like Meddling Mage. So, how does this fit into the the use of those cards? Like, where where would you want this over something that just strips it strips it out or prevents your opponent from playing it altogether? Well, that goes back to the Phyrexian Revoker um, answer, effectively, that this this uniformly hits all copies of said card, right? True. But the so fe- does Meddling Mage. Uh, that's true. So does Meddling Mage. But this has a few advantages over Meddling Mage. One is it affects those cards if they're already in play, true. which Mage does not. Two, this is easier to cast from, from a vintage standpoint. Three, this is a bigger body significantly, right? Three, three with Vigilance. This does a better go- job of closing the game with uh, than meddling mage does 
And it's also not blue, which is a lot liability, as you know. Um, and it's a human. Well, yep. well, which Metal Image is as well, yep. but it fits into the mono-white human deck. That's right. And there's a lot of synergy there with either human or uh, white Eldrazi. Any deck that's got Plains and Ancient Tomb, I think, is interested in this kind of card. You know, this competes directly with your, your Vryn Wingmares of the world. Obviously, the, the Wingmare has other upsides in terms of stifling combo decks in the format. But this can do a fair impersonation of that. And it can be applied to some of the more popular cards in the format, which the Wingmare doesn't hit. And I'm thinking specifically here about Urza's Saga, right? Imagine trying to make a construct for four and tap on an Urza's Saga to Not fight this thing. Not impossible, but just more annoying. <laughs> Highly unlikely yeah. given the deck that this thing would be built around, which would be a mana disruption deck otherwise. Yeah, I think this is a candidate in, in the X-White humans, Green-White humans kind of style and or the X-White Eldrazi kind of style, neither of which are incredibly popular right now. But I think you have to add this to the list of considerations going forward, honestly. I think this plays quite I well. Agree. I think it would go on the list of considerations. I just don't know where the line is and whether you would include it, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's already a lot of competition at that slot. Very much so. Very much so. But if Thalia Heretic Cathar and Vryn Wingmare can be successful in Vintage, I think this card has a, a decent shot. Agreed. Because I think there's situationally, there are metagames or matchups where this card is superior to those. And as yeah. Vintage consolidates around single card effects and by that i mean there's a lot of consolidation around urza's saga there's a lot of consolidation around tinker for um bolus citadel etc right the more consolidated you get the better point solutions get yes now granted this is not very great against tinker but it's still effective that's the thing about this card is you know a uh, uh, a thalia that is to say the two mana thalia is good at, it's good at because of its efficiency and its uniformity, right? Your Tinker costs one just like your Preordain costs one, just like your Time Walk costs one more. This card, the, the tax is bigger, but and the, the effect is still universal, but only for the chosen card. So it, if you understand your role in the matchup, you can still wield this thing very effectively and very pointedly. And, and just to be clear, if your opponent has no cards in hand, you don't get to use Right. I mean, like, uh, no, you do. It it's very carefully worded as it, it enters. Says choose any card, any card name. So it doesn't have to be right. in their hand. It's not okay, connected it. to being in their hand. Yeah. That's very important. It is very important. You're right. You're not limited. Yes. That's the problem that the scheming fence had, if you recall, when we reviewed it for Streets of New Compena, and one of the things that was that contributed to being unplayable. This doesn't have that problem. That's this good. is like this is like Cabal therapy, right? Yes. <laughs> you get to name anything you want. Yeah, that's great. So you can get the information of what your opponent has in hand and then affect something on the board. Yes. So it's it, in some ways that's better than Mesmeric Fiend. It's like, what if you wanted to be able to name like, I don't know, uh, Narset on the table? You can do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. This doesn't well, have I the mean, benefit of, it seems of like turning off onboard mana sources, though, like Revoker does. Right. But it, it can be really annoying. It's things like Top. Oh, very much so. Good example. And Deathrite Shaman. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a frequent fave of someone playing this. Yep. Yeah, very much so. If you could get this out aggressively on the first turn before they've even had a turn to play a Shaman, turns the thing into a three drop, and then all of its abilities stink, that's that's big game against DRS decks. Yeah, but getting this down on turn one is either Lotus Mana Crypt or Double Moxton. Not easy. Well, Ancient Tomb's in there, too. You're right. It's, it's, not, it's not reliable. <laughs> 
So what do you think? Do you think this is going to go into that that mono white humans deck that pops that's that pops up in top eights not infrequently? I would have to look and see how that deck is constructed recently to see what could possibly be um that what this could replace. I mean, I'm always into what this yes. replaces because it's so close to it's so close in function to other cards that you got you just got to have your replacement lined up. <laughs> like Let's take a look at a, a recent version of that mono white humans deck. And so let's look and see if we can find a Thalia deck that doesn't have Luris. So Azorius aggro here listed so because it has mental misstep, but this is a non Luris um, mono white deck. And the key differences between this and the Luris versions, which are more popular these days, the key difference here is that this tops out at Archon of Ameria, which we've obviously talked about many times over. And this deck is primarily two drops with four copies of Archon, leaning heavily on Deafening Silence, leaning heavily on Artifact Accelerants, up to and including Lotus Petal, notably not Mana Crypt, <clears throat> to, to get down a one, uh, sorry, a two drop on turn one as reliably as possible. Creature base is similar. It's got one Containment Priest and one Kataki in the main, then four Arbiters, four Relic Warders, Aspirants, Spear to the Lab, Thalia, two drop, and Archon. I think it's worth noting that this anointed peacekeeper at three is probably playable, castable reasonably in this deck and in this archetype, but it's not especially synergistic with the deafening silence slash Archon of Ameria angle for the deck. Meaning if you're in one hand trying to limit your opponent to casting a single spell each turn, which deafening silence does well, then making that spell cost two more is not actually especially synergistic, right? They're going to have to use all their mana on that one spell anyway. So I, I genuinely believe that Anointed Peacekeeper isn't actually the, the, the right angle for these modern Archon of Ameria decks, but that that boils down to your opponents and metagame matchups a little bit more. So I, I'm not entirely sure. I think that Archon is a more impactful creature in the modern metagame and probably wins the vote over Anointed Peacekeeper 100% of the time, which means now we're talking about do you turn one of these two drops into a three drop, maybe times one or two, in order to get that additional that additional sphere effect. And there, it's a potential metagame call with one of copies of Kataki or Containment Priest in your main, or you could shave one of the lower power two drops like Luminarch Aspirant or Leonin Arbiter, potentially. They're all synergistic, of course. The counterpoint is that, isn't this card just better against Urza Saga? Oh, I think that's a very reasonable take. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in an Urza Saga filled environment that I would be happy to open uh, one or two of these in my opening hand rather than one of these two drops that's slightly lower power. It's worth noting too that the role of Luminarch Aspirant in this deck is, you know, it's almost entirely beat down, right? It doesn't have a, it's not a stacks piece. <laughs> and so to replace a ostensibly a two drop that turns into a three drop that turns into a four drop, uh, I'm talking about damage, I mean. Um, replacing a card like that with a card that's 3-3 out the gate is buying back some of the inherent value that Luminarch Aspirant provides. Not all that value, but some of it. And so, to your point, if you could buy a fair bit of benefit and matchup and match win percentage against Urza's Saga with a couple copies of this, then I think it's, it's worth considering. So, Kevin, make a prediction. Let's look briefly at how common or how well performing these white decks are in the metagame of late 
So 20th, 30th, 29th, 19th. There was an 8th place one on the 3rd. That's Esper. 32nd, 25th. There was a 7th place one on the 20th. That was also Esper. 7th place again in August. So the Esper, that is Luris, variants of these decks, are they're doing well. In August, they put up multiple top 8s and a couple of other close finishes in 11th and 16th place. Gosh, this card need not apply in the Esper context, so it is, is rightly excluded. So now the question starts to become, is this card worth losing, losing Luris in the zone? And I have to believe the answer is no. I There's just no way I can see someone dropping Luris just to play this when Archon of Ameria was right there all along and, and they concluded it wasn't worth it. The only top performance of a non... I say top in quotes. The, the highest performance of a non-Luris mono white aggro deck is 32nd place in the last two months. Otherwise, they're all Luris decks. So that's I think pretty that's... Damning. I think, yeah, that's pretty damning. I agree. I think the thing I said initially is really the strongest endorsement I can get, which is as you're building a mono white or a white X humans deck or a white X Eldrazi deck, this is a consideration. But for the modern implementations... It's going to take a, a strong deviation from the norm to to stand out and to be the right inclusion. So I'm going to go with zero in the next three months. That seems very low. I mean, <laughs> well, one thing you haven't considered, <laughs> we haven't talked about, is even if this is not good enough for the main deck, is it good enough for the sideboard? Oh, uh, that's a good point. I didn't address that directly, though everything I said about Luris applies to that implicitly. Um, not Not exclusively, but implicitly, right? It's possible that you could um, de-companion Luris to have this card in your sideboard, but I can't imagine everyone's anyone's going to actually take that approach. I mean, I've seen a reason these decks. I've seen these decks take out Luris. Well, it, I mean, it's, put in it's possible. In I mean, to, to, for Leyline, right? There, there are compelling reasons to do it, but they're not doing it lately, right? The, the, the bottom line is the. I'm scrolling through the list that have done well lately, and none of them are actually taking that approach. They're using mind, they're using uh, Ravenous Trap, excuse me, and Containment Priest in the board, and sometimes Rest in Peace. Right? They're they're keeping Luris in against the graveyard-based decks. So I I think your point is well made. It, it's worth considering and possible to sideboard this. I d don't think anyone's going to choose to do it in the modern implementation. All right. Or that I should say the current one. The other thing is. This card seems like it could be really good against workshop decks. I mean, look at what it does against a walking ballista. That's very true. It's quite nice against a ballista. I agree. And uh, comparatively hard for a ballista to kill also, even if you don't choose ballista, right? Ballista co frequently comes down with only two counters for, for curve reasons. And this thing being a native 3-3 means it has a lot of advantages there. Yeah, obviously against shops, you can be maximally disruptive and you can pick your targets. Then again, these decks are already featuring main deck Katakis <laughs> and Leon and Relic Warders. Like, they're already kitted out against shops to a significant degree. They tend not to have much more anti-artifact stuff in their sideboards. But Kevin, the top performing lists just, they don't, they don't appear to board up for shops very much. One thing that we have observed in the past is that often the sideboard, optimal sideboard card is not the best card against deck A. Or the best card against deck B, but rather the second best card against both decks A and B. Good point. So the fact that this isn't artifact specific is actually a strength in that regard. That it could be used against Urza Saga and Ballista and Oath, all of those simultaneously. 
That's that's an incredibly good point. You're right. The universality of this card, it's the sort of thing that Phyrexian Revoker has in spades, right? Now, Revoker is cheap enough and ubiquitous enough now that it's always in the main, but... But this can be used against the Bizarre Baghdad. This can be used against anything... That's true. Um, that's true, and th- and that should go. That should be addressed. You're yeah, right. if you wasteland the first bizarre, and then get this down, let's say on turn two, before they get their second, you do a lot of damage. I I don't know. I'm not convinced this is a zero. I'm going to give it a non-zero. I'm going to go two. I think okay. it'll show up somewhere. I think these 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 decks, these white decks, are just good enough that this should see play somewhere. Hey, I'm with you. They are good enough. All right, that's an interesting one. We'll we'll keep an eye on it. We we didn't have any two zeros in our last review, so we will uh, will be fun. Have some fun report card time, Steve. We didn't cover it in the mechanics section leading up to this, but can I interest you in a power stone? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna describe this before I read this card because I think doing so in the middle would be disruptive. A power stone is a token. It's an artifact. That's says, not what a power stone is. It's not a token, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> it's a taps for colorless. And it says this mana can't be spent to cast a non-artifact spell. Can't be spent to cast a non-artifact spell. So bear that in mind as I tell you about Karn Living Legacy. Four mana, legendary planeswalker Karn. Starts with four loyalty. Plus one, create a tapped power stone token. Minus one, pay any amount of mana... Look at that many cards from the top of your library, then put one of those into your hand, the rest on the bottom in any order. Oh, sorry, random order. Minus seven, you get an emblem with tap and untap artifact you control. This emblem deals one damage to any target. What was the second one? The second ability? Minus one, pay any amount of mana, look at that many cards, put one into your hand and the rest on the bottom in random order. That's bananas. Yep. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> bananas it's it's impulse for x basically but it yeah. starts with it starts with uh it's it's based on the number of mana so if you pay one you get to look at one that's right you just draw your top card if you pay one so the power stones are, are a little bit tricky in that they have a double negative in their definition they can't be used to cast non-artifact what that means is they can they be must. used to cast artifact spells or to activate abilities of any type of permanence Yes, they must be used to cast <laughs> artifacts or activate permanent. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been easier, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Magic, um, the rules, syntax is a challenging thing. So this is an interesting one. This has very, very. little, if any, very. impact on the board. <laughs> I think is the most notable thing is this does not interact with your opponent's permanence in any way. This doesn't s- disrupt them in any way. All this does is give you resources until you get to the ultimate, which is hard to do. Going from four to seven is hard to do in Vintage. So the first two abilities are all about either mana or cards. I believe that that fact alone, especially in light of other cards in the format, for Pete's sake, makes this immediately out ruled out. But four mana Karn Planeswalkers is kind of some rarefied air in Vintage, and so I figured we should at least discuss Yes. It. Well, I don't... <laughs> It's not so much that it's rarefied air, so much as that every single one of them has seen play, <laughs> right? And well, subst- an often shocking amount of play. I mean, I guess what I was Karns, referring to is is how good the latest Karn is, but still, yeah. I, I mean, Karn Scion of Urza is the, is the second one, the the first four one. I mean, even the first mm-hmm. one was appearing in those big European vintage events, the one that cost like seven or whatever. But Karn, Karn Scion, 
Yeah, Carn overrated. Is that what you called it? <laughs> no, liberated, but uh, yeah. overrated from a vintage standpoint is, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if it's even overrated. Anyway, go on. Well, Karn Sign of Urza kind of was a sleeper hit. Right. It was big It was a slow play. burn. Well, it was just a kind of card. It wasn't, it, did, it wasn't splashy at first, but it definitely saw a lot of play in Basically, it was just a very different angle of attack in the PO decks. Yeah, right? played the to the PO board, decks get... non-blastable. Yeah, it's like you load up on your REBs, and what good does this thing do? Or you've got your null rods down, and what good, do, you know... Pretty what, strong what precursor that? to Urza Saga, wouldn't you say? <laughs> very much. Um, I wish we had brought that up in our Saga <laughs> review, but yes. And then the second one was like, holy hell, this card is so good, it's going to get restricted. Yeah. So, Yep. Um, now, one of the things that they all have in common is they generate card advantage. But the other two, so Karn Sangan of Urza is primarily, I would say, a win condition. It's not mostly about. I mean, it's a James Day tome. I mean, it's it's yeah, you know it functions like that, a James Day tome. Yeah, it it was kind of like a a James Day tome, but mostly people were trying to generate the tokens. Frankly. I mean, yes, there were occasions in which, you know, you would factor fiction your opponent. Yeah. Um, yeah, but if the tokens were somehow ineffectual, I agree. The what? If the tokens were somehow ineffectual. Right. But that was the primary usage was, okay, yeah. I'm generating two tokens and then I'm going to start toming. <laughs> Basically, was how I experienced it most of the time. Maybe that was because of the decks I was playing. But that's mostly what I saw used. Um, the second Karn was obnoxious on, as an unrestricted card and sort of didn't <laughs> exist very long in that form. Um, but its primary usage, I would say, so we're talking, of course, here about Karn, the great creator, right? Yep. Um, so off the bat, it's a null rod, but just for your opponent. I mean, it's pretty much the case that immediately you use it to wish, right? It's like that's the first use is the wish. Um, yeah, I think that's plan A, unless... Um Unless you can't cast the card that you would get immediately, and you need to bolster Karn's um, defense, Loyalty. yeah, Loyalty. to live to the next turn. Yes, but mostly it's like I'm going to double wish. <laughs> yeah, I would say like eight out of ten instances or scenarios and situations in which I've encountered this, that's what's happened. Yep. So what that basically means is it's used for its disruptive ability simultaneously with the with the card advantage. I think it's fair to say if it didn't have the null rod effect, it would not be restricted. It's it's because that was what was so obnoxious. I remember in particular, Rich Shea was incensed by this card <laughs> <laughs> because it was so obnoxious in the shop mirror. Remember? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. This card meets some of those benchmarks. So number one, it is card advantage. No question it about it. It is. It also is carded. It's also this is the thing we haven't seen from this. It's it's ramps up your mana supply fairly quickly. I mean, being able to tap this basically, you generate something that's like a mini lotus, mini lotus petal, right? It's kind of, but it stays in play. It's half a soul ring. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and that's pretty good. I mean, if you can play this, I don't know, let's say on turn two off an ancient tomb. A, another land in a mox, you get that half a soul ring immediately, which you can potentially use depending on what you're playing. And then next turn, you can 
use that additional mana to start impulsing, you know, pretty deeply. Um, and within a few, I mean, look, here's what I'm trying to get at. In a pure comparative card advantage sense, not in terms of the virtual card advantage that's gotten through the Null Rod, this thing actually outstrips Karn the Great Creator. It's not a tutor, which Great Karn the Great Creator is, but of course it's limited tutoring for the sideboard. But the fact that you can get, I mean, you already have gotten card advantage by the second activation, by the third activation here, right? You've gotten advantage. In other words, if you do the first activation is plus one, the second activation is minus one, and the third activation is minus one, this will have three loyalty sitting on it, and you will have basically impulse twice for however many you want. That's You're already ahead on cards. And pretty substantially if you want in terms of card quality, right? Potentially. I mean, let's just say that you activate, you'd minus one on turn the second activation for let's say, let's say three. That's better than a ponder right there, pretty much. And then the next activation, the third activation, again, is minus one. If you do it for four or five, you're probably getting something that's spectacular out of that. Impulse for five, I'll take that. Granted, you have to pay five mana. But the point is that I guess there is some trade-off here. I think the thing, the trickiest part to analyze and the, probably the key in the long term is just how effective this is going to be as a win condition. The fact that you have to tap, un- tap an untapped artifact, generates one. But the, you know what's unbelievable about this, Kevin? It's just an emblem. So it's just you have total <laughs> inevitability once you get the en- emblem. It doesn't yeah. matter if this goes away at that point, right? It's like, <laughs> unless you Shatterstorm me or something equivalent to that, every art of, every mox I play is a is a prodigal sorcerer. It's a rod <laughs> of ruin. <laughs> and I could do it at the end of your turn, right? Untap, ping you, ping you, ping you. Yep, yep. This card is really interesting, especially, I mean, it could, I don't know, it's a little time intensive to use a PO win condition because you've got to, you've got to get four turns to plus it, right? You got to plus it, plus it, plus it, and then you got to have one more turn to get the emblem. So that's a little out of reach for PO, whereas PO, the car, the Scion is a little faster, I think, is a win condition there because you can just, you can go infinite with this, with um, Karn, Scion, uh, and PO, or draw your deck. Time walk once and win with your construct, right? Um, right? <laughs> yeah, so, it's true. It's true. Um, so it's just a little out of reach for each of those purposes, but I think this might be, I think this is strong enough to see play. I really do. Well, for perspective, Karn Scion of Urza has not made an appearance in that's quite a because, long time. That's because it, there's no reason for it to see play when Urza Saga exists. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> that is permanently rendered Karn Scion of Urza irrelevant. It does everything you wanted the Karn sign of Urza to do, and better. So that's not surprising. Yeah. I also view this card through the lens of opportunity cost pretty strongly. Sure. The, um, the, <laughs> it's ironic. There was a, uh, a Karn sign of Urza in the challenge winning deck from July 23rd. Bills Live took first place with a Lutri Shops deck. Wow. And in the Lutri context, opportunity cost kind of goes out the window. Not completely, but, you know, to a significant degree. That's a deck that had both the Great Creator and Scion of Urza in So it. <laughs> I'm already non-zero for that deck, if, if no others. But uh, but that's only that's only one of two appearances, and the other one was not a top eight appearance. That's only one of two appearances for Karn in the last four months. Karn I mean, the Great Creator? Yeah, uh, no, Karn, Scion of, of Urza. Yeah. Great Creator still shows up all the time. So uh, I just think Lutri notwithstanding, which is fairly anomalous, 
the opportunity cost of this Karn is you're not playing the other Karns. Yeah, but really. one of them is restricted and the other one's unplayable now. Well, so then, so, so what you're saying is you think this card is, is more playable than Scion of Urza. I agree with that, yes. Okay. I don't think the scenarios, the, the so-to-speak beneficial scenarios that you laid out there a minute ago are very compelling. Uh, you glazed over, you said it, but you glazed over pretty strongly the notion that you have to commit a lot of mana to this second ability for it to be very good. Committing one mana, not too much of a problem, right? You made the power stone the turn before, put, tap that power stone and get your one card. Like, okay, that's, you can, you've already paid four mana. You're not costing yourself any more incremental mana to, uh, to just draw one card a turn. It, it, so it does a pretty good Jame Daytome impersonation in that sense. With some upside of flexibility if you Come want. In. <clears throat> but there's a lot of cards for four mana that do a good Jame Day Tome impersonation in Vintage. And I just, the the kind of decks that are playing Great Creator or Scion of Urza these days, they're not trying to go bigger in mana than the four mana that they've got, right? Okay. Like, they do in practice because they're a full Moxon Soul Ring Mana Crypt decks. Yes. But they're not trying to do that, right? That's not their primary goal. They're trying to beat you down, like in Workshop Aggro. They're trying to Golos you which is, but, you know, mana restriction. Like, I mean... I but, just, Kevin, you can use the mana. I mean, you can use the mana to... I mean, this this token is an artifact. You can right. use it to like, feed Ravager. You can use it to activate it, it, Ballistas. Yeah, there's material there. You're right. But um, it's just not compelling enough. Like, this opinion. can't make a creature, <laughs> right? If I'm building a deck, if I'm building Workshop Aggro, I'm going to pick the card that wins the game on its own, and the next card I'm going to pick is the one that makes a creature. Right, like I'm not going to pick this this Jame Day Tome over the one that just makes a creature. The Karn, the, the shop decks already use Urza Saga. Why would they want Scion of Urza? Well, you're missing my point. My point is about my point is about integration into the the deck building yes. process and what the goals of the card are. The Your kind point, of deck that can produce four mana, four non artifact mana to cast this card is not the sort of deck that needs that one more and well, then the Jame Day Tome thereafter. I'm. Let me just, for the sake of argument, agree with everything you just said. Okay. I think your larger argument is about the opportunity cost of this card versus vis-a-vis the other cards. I think that's a fundamentally flawed an analytic point okay. when one of the cards is restricted and the other is now fundamentally unplayable. Well, so but that's... I, I, I think you are, would be on stronger ground if you were making the argument not vis-a-vis Karn Cyanaversa, but other cards that you might play. Well, the, that's the larger issue, not, except, yeah, not okay, how this I'm, fits in with other Karns. I'm sorry. I, I, it's just, I see your point, but the uh, the I see your point. There's no other equivalent card that this is really fighting for, though. So, I mean, that's why we started this whole conversation about the lineage of Karns, right? Yes, but that's the <laughs> that's the thing with new cards, Kevin, is that there isn't necessarily when you create a novel effect, you don't you can't evaluate a card entirely on the basis of does this do something better than an existing effect. That's the right, thing, though, is this card is novel in the most pedantic of senses only. <laughs> this this is not novel. This this giving you a little bit more mana or giving you some card selection is not novel in Magic, right? Okay. Uh, the this decks that would include this card enough. are already leaving thousands of cards that meet those descriptions on the table for efficiency reasons, you know? Uh, here's how I would put the case with this card. It's a four-mana colorless Planeswalker that generates mana advantage, card advantage, and serves as an ultimate win condition that's pretty unbeatable as a win condition. I mean, I think... It is unbeatable as a win condition, I agree. I think this is just high utility across the board. Now, you can say, in a particular context, it might not be good enough. 
that you want you need another card over this that's all very legitimate but i don't think that you can <laughs> conclude that this is unplayable because of its relation to the card and sign of urza or the great creator <laughs> i think you okay. have to say that in the metagame or in the deck that would be operating in a particular metagame this card is not high value enough or high, immediately impactful enough and that's a very legitimate point yeah i just see that it does three things that are very useful and i think it, another thing I like about it is that it's you get to choose and it's situationally <laughs> optimized, right? It's like if you're in the moment where you just desperately need another card, you can just look for another card immediately. You just and it's not it's not it's you put it in your hand. You can't though it's, though. That's the thing. You can't though. You you go turn one, land mox, play some spells. Turn two, a land another mox. Oh, I play my card, but I desperately need more cards. Oh wait, I can't draw cards. Because I tapped out for four and I can't put any more mana in this. That's fine. Then you no, just... it's not fine. In the scenario you just laid down, flexibility was the premise. This card isn't actually that flexible. The turn you play it, there is one choice. You're making a power stone. I think. I think a lot of times I I agree in the scenario you just described. That's not going to happen. But it like you can't workshop this out, which means that there are going to be a lot of scenarios where you play this on turn three or turn four and you do actually have the additional mm. mana. It's possible. At the same time, no, no, that's no, not it's compelling. Absolutely possible. The question isn't what it's possible. Yeah, it's that's not it's not compelling. Is is what I would say. Okay. I mean, you're right about the flexibility in the, in a situation like that. And lots of times, you will have a choice between the first two. Um, it's just watered down in both cases, right? Like, okay. you say, I need some mana. Well, here's a thing that has a narrow well, application. It taps for one next turn. Like, hope that's good enough. <laughs> I think that the I think the limiting factor here is the fact that you have to sink your mana into the second ability. Yeah. I think that's really where this is hurt. Like the the Scion Factor Fiction does not require any mana expenditure. You just get it, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's where this is really hurt. So what it means is that like if you have this out on turn 2 or 3, when it comes to the next turn, you have to make a choice between playing cards in hand, maximizing this or a, a or playing this and trying to draw something you desperately need that you can play now mm -hmm. and figuring out the combination of that, which means that you're going to be trying to figure out, do I pay two? Do I pay three into this? Do I pay four into this? And that's going to be really prospectively challenging. It's worth noting that this does play well with Sensei's Divining Top. Divining Top kind of can activate uh, act the, the represents more mana in this activation, you know? For two yeah, mana, I, I just you think can this get the third, mana, the third card down. I mean, where we are drawing the line, Kevin, is not, we don't, we're not drawing the line. Does this earn a spot in the best deck in the format? <laughs> we're, we're not. Where we're drawing the line is, will this appear in a vintage top eight? Yeah. Which is a much lower bar than I think where you're implicitly setting the bar. Uh, that because, is totally true. That's let totally me, true. Let me, just, let me just unpack that just a little bit more. You understand what I'm saying. But for our yeah. audience, if, if, you know, for any community or school, to borrow a very popular analogy for magic, school of an archetype. You have a consent you have the heterodox and the orthodox designers, right? So like there's always going to be heterodox designers like Brian Kelly who are going to play fringe cards. Um so if like 80% of PO players would dismiss this but 20% want to play it, it doesn't matter if there's 80% consensus that this is not optimized. If one or more of the 20% play it and do well, and top eight, it, it in a sense proves that it's a vintage playable in the broadest sense. 
So that's what our bar is here, Kevin. <laughs> the bar is not whether it's optim it's in the optimized consensus orthodox version of a deck. It's whether there's a, a better than even chance that this card will appear in any version of a deck where it could see play. So the yeah. bar is much lower than where you were setting it. Well, I, I respect that. I'm still going to go with zero. I think also this could see play outside of the decks that we're talking about, the shop decks. I think it's good enough that this could see play in sort of like a big mana um, blue deck of some variant, like a Grixis deck. I think it could see play. I mean, that actually might be where this is optimized, Kevin. I agree. The fact that... What? I agree. I don't think this is playable in shops. I think it's less playable in shops than it is in PO <laughs> or, or yeah. Tinker. I mean, the fact that you can just, you know, invest, like you can just basically, you know, tap five and put a card into your hand and still have mana left over on like turn three or four is pretty good, I think. And it's also just hard to kill this thing outright. And it does ramp up your mana and you can get, this is, it's not a small thing that, um, I mean, that you can use this, the, the token for other purposes too, like we mentioned, like feeding a Ravager or something. So, um, all right. You're a zero, I take it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go, well, I just have to, I, I do want to be faithful to being accurate, but I also just need to name, say one to defeat <laughs> you. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say three. Oh, aggressive. Well, I think I think it actually could see a lot more play than that. I wouldn't be surprised if this was like a, a four or a five. Well, if you if you're a brewer out there listening to us, then pick a side. If you want to see Steve be successful in our report card, then go to town with Karn Living Legacy. There is one tiny other aspect of this card that I enjoy, and that is the introduction of the Power Stone is possibly as close as we're ever going to get to seeing Mox Karn. Like, <laughs> once it's sitting in play, a Power Stone looks a heck of a lot like Mox Karn, you know? It's a zero mana artifact, and it taps to only cast, art, art, you know, it should cast, not cast only artifact spells, but it's got that double negative in it instead. <clears throat> I think it's, I think it's kind of noteworthy. If we ever actually get Mox Karn or something that tries to do that impersonation, <laughs> Power Stone will have done it first. Awesome. All right. This next card, which is also Karn's, is I think a little bit more defensible from my perspective. That is one Karn's Silex. For three mana, it's a legendary artifact. Karn's Silex enters the battlefield tapped. Players can't pay life to cast spells or to activate abilities that aren't mana abilities. Wow. And it has an activated ability. X and tap. Exile Karn's Silex. Destroy each non-land permanent with mana value X or less. Activate only as a sorcery. This card slices and dices, Steve. We've got lots of comparisons to make here. <laughs> go ahead. Go through the litany. Well, so obviously this card is doing two separate things and doing them fairly well. The players can't pay life to cast spells or activate abilities is most close to uh, Yasharn, the implacable, the big pig that prevents you from paying life to activate spells <laughs> and abilities. Um, it's most A lot of players will remember that from that. It's not exactly the same phraseology, so it's a little more limited because um, Yasharn stops spells too. But either way, this stops fetch lands, number one, which Yasharn does. Then the activated ability is basically just pernicious deed with more restrictions because you have to activate it as a sorcery. But otherwise, this is just doing a pernicious deed, destroying each non-land permanent X or less. So 
it's sweeping in its application, like Deed is, more so than your um, your engineered explosives and your powder kegs and your ratchet bombs, right? This gets X or less. So you can really sweep up the board. And if you're the sort of deck to have higher mana value permanence, you can get um, as- uh, you can get asymmetric card advantage by having something big out, like, a, I don't know, call it a Golos, call it a Mirror Enforcer, whatever you want. Uh, Cauldra complete like you can have a, a big artifact in play and sweep up all the smaller permanents and take over the game that way It's worth noting that while this comes into play tapped and you can't do the pernicious deed impersonation right away The static ability is online right away. So if you go workshop silex go Then all the fetch lands in your opponent's hand are have suddenly become well, they basically cannot be used I think this has a all of the things we're comparing this to have a long history of power in the format. Well, Yasharn, notwithstanding, but the various things that disable other abilities, like your revokers and such, combined with the removal aspects, because we all know that explosive slash deed slash bomb yeah. are there's a disc. There's, well, uh, yeah, disc. Oh, yeah. There's a whole history going all the way back to the beginning. You're right. Um, I think this card is fantastic, and the question is not if but when in terms of playability for me. Well, um. I think Pernicious Deed has actually appeared in some vintage top eights of late. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, Justin Gennari made a, a really great performance with it, um, wrapping up, or sorry, not wrapping up, uh, cleaning up sagas with it, because Pernicious Deed is especially, well, pernicious against sagas. <laughs> um, this is useful even though it's tapped immediately, so it's well designed, right? Yeah, um, I like that. Yeah. It also, as you said, shut down Bolus' Citadel, right? So by comparison, <clears throat> Yasharn says, Players can't pay life or sacrifice non-land permanence to cast spells or activate abilities. Whereas the Silex says players can't pay life to cast spells or to activate abilities that aren't mana abilities. So, two things. One, Yasharn is more broad in that it shuts off sa- sacrificing permanence also. So it hits both sides of the fetch land activation. But it also means like Yasharn shuts off wasteland in a way that Karn does not. Also... Karn has an exception for mana abilities, so Karn does not disrupt mana at all, whereas Yasharn would for things like, um, well, like Lotus Petal. You can't activate a Lotus Petal or a Black Lotus under Yasharn, but you can with Karn. Okay, it also stops Phyrexian mana, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think this is fairly disruptive. It also means that, does this prevent Force of Will from being used? Pitch cast, yep. Force of Will and uh, Mental good. Misstep can't be pitch cast. That's pretty darn good. Um, question. If you were a workshop player, how would you feel about playing this on turn one? I would feel quite good. I think so. it gives you a fair bit of insulation in that the fair decks in the format <clears throat> have their mana immediately disrupted with this card, right? Yep. Those those seven and eight fetch land decks are just immediately unhappy to see this. <laughs> and the unfair yeah! decks... <laughs> well, in the unfair decks in the format tend to have to go through effects like um well what's, what's a good example um doomsday can't um play can't, can't activate street wraith can't activate force of will yep can't activate getaxian probe right probe good example knight's whisper now it's worth noting that the effect uh, of you, paying you, life you, you it, sorry knight's whisper is loses life it's that's right L- yeah. knight's whisper and doomsday have that in common it's a, where yeah. the, it's part of the resolution so you can still doomsday under Karn Silex here. But the point is is that the unfair decks in the format tend to be disrupted by this also. Not everyone. Oops All Spells probably doesn't care about this. I'd have to go double check the lists. But um, but either way, I would feel pretty secure about that as a workshop player. Agreed. So, I mean, I think this is pretty busted. 
on turn one, if this resolves, if your opponent's hand is like three fetch lands and a island, <laughs> they're screwed. Um, if you know, they have to force this on turn one. Um, if it resolves, they can't force anything for the rest of the game. Um, assuming this stays out, and then if they do anything annoying, you know, like let's say your opponent plays a uh, Kataki, you can activate this for two mana and destroy the Kataki. So this seems to, this is good against the aggro. Like, you know what workshop is always needed? It's always needed something like that. Imagine how good this would have been in the mirror match that Rich Shea and Andy Markenton played. Mm, It was at 2016. Yeah. Like this would have been decisive. (laughs) Everyone had zero mana spells and tokens with all their ballista and BS like that. Yeah. This seems very good to me in a lot of situations. It's good early, it's good late. It um it's I mean, even being able to prevent your opponent from I mean, just turning off Belocicidal, all that stuff, that's good. Seems to me that's good. It also stops force of negation. Um it does not, not prevent Not negation. Just will. Oh, cause, sorry, it does not prevent force of vigor or force of negation, but it um does some work. Stopping yeah, misstep and force of will, among other things. So um the combination of being able to prevent fetch lands from being activated and the force of wills is very disruptive, I think. So, yeah. I mean, you Notably, might just win the game on turn one if it resolves that way. <laughs> it doesn't stop Ancient Tomb, which is worth noting, because Tomb is like Doomsday and Night's Whisper. The damage is on resolution. Now, is that the case for mana, con- mana confluences pay one life? So you. Uh, that's right. So in this case, uh, City of Brass has maybe become the superior card in vintage. <laughs> However, it says that aren't mana abilities. So you could still activate uh, mana confluence. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> this will never shut <laughs> off a mana ability in that sense. Uh, dismember is also added to the list of things this disrupts. Doesn't make Good it uncastable, call. of course, but a lot of decks that play dismember can't cast it with the Cyrex right. in play. Like like the shop decks we were talking about from 2016. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's funny. I like For, this. Phyrexian Metamorph, another good card. Oh, Popular yeah. card in a couple different archetypes. More Phyrexian yeah. mana nonsense. That's right. Disrupting Phyrexian mana hits hits a lot of archetypes in this format. Some a little, some a lot. I think ultimately this doesn't answer uh, Collector Oof, which is true. You know, notably a gap. But against all the modern blue decks, this I mean, any kind of deck that's trying to play fair. So your Jeskai, your Sultai, etc. This is hitting like ten cards in those decks just as a baseline between fetches and forces and, and Phyrexian mana. It's not hitting anything uh, that they can't win without, I guess is what I would say. It's not, it doesn't shut down very many primary uh, paths to victory in those decks, but in the Tinker decks, you already talked about Citadel. That's enormous. So a powerful amount of splash damage against fair decks and a primary win condition shut off against the Tinker decks. That right there might be a reason enough... Yeah, to play this card. But then you add in all the other splash hate. Like, you've got splash hate even against things like Hollow Vine, right? Those are still fetch land yep. decks. Definitely. Yeah, that's... It, it remains to be seen whether or not leaving this card in, if you have it in the main, is right against Hollow Vine. But hey, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, if my opponent has a Basking Root Walla, a Deathrite Shaman, a Hollow One, and a Vengevine in play, I'm definitely activating this thing for five. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Sorry. I was all thinking about the the prevention aspects and not the onboard aspects. You're right. That's It's still incredibly good there. It's funny. I wish you could play this in a Hogak deck 
<laughs> somebody who's, list- to, somebody who's to- listening to me and is so inclined, build us a, a workshop Hogak deck that can play Silex. <laughs> Calling upon Zayas. Yeah, there Doctors, you go. Doctors. Uh, it's notable. Oh. It's notable the tension that this creates. This serves, for lack of a better term, it serves the. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm overstating it. It's not quite as good against PO as your your kegs and deeds are, because obviously the instant speed activation is critical at hitting PO right where it hurts. Right. You can just turn one ancient tomb keg go and. It's untapped and it's ready to go and it's always at zero if you need it. Like that's incredibly powerful against uh, out- outcome. This is not quite that good. You're going to be disrupting any fetch lands they have, of course, and the other things we talked about, Phyrexian mana wise. But in terms of hurting outcome itself, you're going to have to catch them on your main phase with Moxon in play to make it really ideal. <clears throat> so this is less helpful against outcome in that sense. I'd probably still leave it in if I had it, I think because it's still really good at sweeping up the board and it gives it forces them yeah. to have some tension as between playing out artifacts and not. It is unfortunate that this can only be activated as a sorcery. That's frustrating. Yeah. That that last ability. It makes it much less good against Vengevine in that sense. Or outcome. And outcome. Where you want to do it in response to their outcome, right? That's the optimal. Yep. Do still. I think this do I think this rules it out? No, I don't think so. Yep. So, now the question is is this playable in decks other than workshop decks? I believe the answer to be yes, at face value, playable, but probably not the right choice for the kind of roles we're looking at. The flexibility has some value, right? It's, it's doing a Ratchet Bomb impersonation and it's doing a Yasharn impersonation. So decks like Bug, for example, who can play um, Pernicious Deed and, and have, you get a tiny bit of upside by playing this against other fair decks, but it's symmetrical, so it disrupts your own fetches too. Got to keep that in mind. Yeah, I guess the risk isn't worth the reward in the fetch land decks. Yes, you get your chance to fetch first, maybe two times before you play this, but you're still disrupting yourself. So what's a non-fetch land deck, non-workshop deck that might want this effect? You don't want to play it in a tinker deck because you're shutting off your own citadel. Too expensive, not impactful enough for Doomsday. Yeah, I don't think this is going anywhere. Yeah. I think you're right. I don't see any other deck. Oath? There's no way Oath wants this. No. Yeah, I think this is this is workshop only. Though I think it goes in aggro or prison, potentially. There's a difficult question of opportunity cost, obviously. And um, I, I don't think I could even attempt to answer that right here and now. Perhaps this is simply a sideboard card. It could be a one-of when you've got access to Karn the Great Creator. Let's make some predictions. Well, I'm definitely going non-zero here. And I don't think this is the sort of thing that immediately becomes a staple in aggro shops or anything, but aggro shops is putting up a lot of performances lately. And so I won't be surprised if this doesn't show up in the 5 to 10 range. I'm I'm a little conflicted because I think this card is exciting. I think this is the sort of thing that, that vintage players would look at in the spoiler and say, oh, that's a vintage card. And so that's going to bolster its numbers. But I also think it's tricky to thread the needle on how this card actually fits. And so people are going to try and fail, which is good. But, but try and fail, I think, a fair bit until we find our spot. So if this hits, I don't think it's going to hit hard. I think it'll be a slow burn. I'm going to go with... Mm, yeah, I think I'm going to go with five, since that was my first instinct. That's almost exactly what I expected. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go there with you. I'm going to go five. Okay. 
since we've got so many examples of you taking the over, I respect the tie on this one. <laughs> okay. Temporary lockdown. One dub dub enchantment. When temporary lockdown enters the battlefield, exile each, importantly, each non-land permanent with mana value two or less until temporary lockdown leaves the battlefield. Now, Steve, we don't play these Oblivion Rain Tyke effects in no. Vintage, really. I mean, Detention Sphere has seen play occasionally, often back in the day. But the thing about this one is it hits everything, right? It's gonna hit, it's gonna remove every Mox and every Sol yep. Ring and a lots of and almost every creature in mono white aggro, right? It's gonna remove yep. all your oaths, all your spheres. Like it clean it does a pretty good cleanup job in the vintage context. Deathrite Shaman, Dreadhorde Arcanist, all that jazz. Do you think an effect that does that in a symmetrical way has a place? Well, it's hard to disentangle my personal preferences of this sort of thing with the larger question. Because okay. the larger question, I mean, the specific question is, or like the decks that I play with are usually that that would that have white and blue are are tend to be Xerox decks that bend the mana curve really low, and that wouldn't want this because their win conditions tend to be cost one, two, or three. Right. Um. This would be something. This is a control card, right? This is something where you're playing a control deck, and you want, I guess, you're deep in white, and you want to be able to sort of, you know clear a board on a recurring basis, I think. Um, I could see this use be appearing. There's just a weird incidence of of, of removal. I, I still don't understand. What's that prismatic card that sees play in sort of the, the <laughs> Jeskai decks? What is that card? Yeah, prismatic ending. Yeah, that's so, so widely played. <laughs> um, but I just don't think there is an operative really... I mean, this is basically like a landstill card. When I mean control deck, like yeah. genuine, authentic control. I don't see any of those could, in the format right now. If you could construct a aggro control deck, a Delver-style deck, where all no. of your threats were Delve-style threats, yes, this would have a place there, right? Agreed, yes. That's because this not, plays quite well with your Tassigers, Anglers, and, uh, and Murktide regions. Yes, agreed. But that's not the way that they're set up right now. So True. I don't, I don't see a place for this until... I think it's the kind of card that you might want to pick up if it's not too expensive. I, sus I this is probably pretty good in standard type format. Might, maybe maybe not standard, but like probably a decent rare in some middling format where there's a lot of two drops, and this yeah. is a good rare. But if it's not too expensive, it might be worth picking up a couple copies in case someday down. Especially if you're a a blue white player and you enjoy, enjoy playing control decks, I could see this being played someday at some future point. But I mean, if you look at the most recent vintage metagame results, it's like there are like three Belcher decks in top eights. This is not. <laughs> I'm serious. There's like Balustroid, you know, it, we've, we're in a moment where we're seeing a lot of Seagate, Seagate restoration decks in top eights. So, right. I don't think this is the moment yeah. for that. I mean, it's not to say that this isn't useful at wiping out Moxon and stuff like that, but. It's not this, the same thing, but I'm reminded of the moat slot in Landstill. Definitely. It doesn't. It obviously doesn't. Um, doesn't sweep up the way Moat does. But still, I'm picturing what you're talking about. You got one or two copies. You're using it to be some kind of end game or mid game solution to a situation in a control deck. I agree. Um, the problem. I, the other problem is it's just not going to do enough cleanup. I mean, it doesn't stop like Monastery Mentor. It stops the tokens. Hmm. But I think there's too much it misses too. And the fact that it's symmetrical means it's it's just so hard to build around. Like we said with aggro control, you're almost inevitably going to get one or two of your own moxes swept up in this. Yep. It's hard to break the symmetry in vintage. 
I mean, I suppose it does help you. Like, you could play this and you can immediately play standstill, right? You're mostly going to be wiping things off out. True. So, it's so dissynergistic with modern standstill, though, because the modern landstill decks are so token based, right? Yep. The sagas and the sharknados. Yep. <laughs> this sweeps up all your win cons. Give me a, a damn factory. Yep. <laughs> right? All right. I'm going to go with zero on the lockdown. Interesting, but I agree. <clears throat> We're cheating here on this next one because it's actually a cycle, but I'm going to read you Defiler of Dreams. There's one of these for each color. Three UU, creature Phoenix, sorry, Phyrexian Sphinx. Jeez, how did I get Phoenix out of that? Phyrexian Sphinx. Flying, 4-3. As an additional cost to cast blue permanent spells, note permanent, you may pay two life. Those spells cost blue less to cast if you paid life this way. The effect reduces only the amount of blue mana you pay. Whenever you cast a blue permanent spell, draw a card. Now let me talk about the cycle real quick. There's a cycle of these. They all cost four or five. They all are defilers. They all have that text of as an additional cost to cast X permanent spells, you can pay two life. Basically, it's grafting a Phyrexian mana onto all of your permanent spells of their color. And then they all have some triggered ability. The blue one draws cards. The red one does damage, you can imagine. I've chosen the blue one here because of the vintage context, of course. Steve? This is a, a, a newish effect. Like, we've never seen anything quite like this, but we've seen cost reduction effects in the past, right? This one, in unique in the way it implements kind of a Phyrexian-like mana onto blue permanents, but that permanent clause really gets me. Like, there's just no deck in the format, or recently, that's trying to load the board with, with one color of permanence, right? The fact that this requires you to be in that color and be playing a permanent spell feels like a deal breaker to me if only you could cast a preordain with this then we'd be on to something but i think this is pretty noteworthy in that it's a pretty strong recursive mana engine in the card pool with the most cards what do you think well we like to talk about these engine cards yeah i i you know what this kind of it, this is not an intellectual observation but it kind of <laughs> reminds me there was a class of card that came out maybe like five years ago maybe older Kevin, I think they were called. I think they were gods. What was the red or blue god? You're talking about Karanos. Exactly. What, what was that? Karanos is five mana yes. devotion up to seven of red and blue. But it says when you reveal the first card, you draw each of your turns. Whenever you get a land, you draw a card. Whenever you get a non-land, it does three damage. Okay, so there's a little bit of an engine effect, or, or an iterative engine effect here. Well, I think what strikes me about this is that some of these engines are viable. They just take so much to get started. And that's the True. problem with these with these engines. They're just, I mean, five mana is a massive investment. Um, it's not outside the realm of possibility, but you're getting this into play, right? And then from there, you can reduce cost and then start drawing cards. Reduce cost, start drawing cards. Reduce cost, start drawing cards. That's all contingent on getting this out and protecting it immediately, right? Yeah, you have to be in the business of playing a blue permanent after you've played this. Yes. And ideally one that comes down immediately to get yes. the value. So you have to be in a deck that's got one, maybe two mana blue permanents that you're incentivized to have before this and after it. It doesn't play well with the things like Delver, for example, which is the go-to blue permanent I always right. think of. It's This is not a good Delver card by any stretch. No, you would probably want that card we just talked about from the previous set. The, the um, two... The two meta one where you cast spells and then you start cycling. Oh, you mean Ledger Shredder? Yes. Yeah, this would play decently with a Ledger Shredder. That's true. 
<laughs> you say that as if you're surprised. <laughs> no, that's that's but that's a ledger shredder is a better example of the sort of the sort of Delver style permanence. You don't really play it in Delver right now, but um, that makes use of being an early game threat, but is amplified by being a mid or late game threat. I think Ledger Shredder is a pretty keen uh, call out in terms of its applicability with this particular defiler. If you can come up with another two or three Riddle Smith permanents like that, you might be onto something. Riddle Smith. The other thing is you're incentivized to play repeatedly here. That's the thing. That is the thing. Like the card Standstill, for example kind of meets the criteria for this, but it's not any good. You you know, you paid five and then a one more mana just to get your standstill in play with a threat. That's it's it's not the right kind of engine. It's not the right kind of value. Something that returned to your hand would be strong that had some incremental reason to come back to your hand. Or, you know, return to your hand from the graveyard or something like that. There's gotta be some Mist clever deck building. Mist Hollow Griffin. Yeah. Some combination with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, you only get one Phyrexian mana out of all these Defilers. They're all structured the same way. So you're incentivized to play cheap permanents. Yep. A yep. single blue permanent is the ideal case. This is this is not an this is not a vintage engine. It's a yeah. marginal advantage engine. It's not something that's gonna spin you out into a domineering. There's just no way to design a deck or <laughs> to leverage this in that kind of abusive way. Uh, I just don't think. Even if there was a true two-card engine for this, and there are a couple of examples like Shrieking Drake, which still needs another piece to win, it's it wouldn't be the best two-card engine available to you, right? A five-mana right. permanent for one and a blue one at that, which is the worst slash best color to be, and then relying on other blue permanents, and they have to be... It's, yeah, it's... I think you're right. It is a possible engine. It's just not worth the spin-up. Do Does a card being in a different color change your opinion in any way? Because there's one of these for each. The black one pumps your creature and makes it, yeah, gives it yeah. menace. The green one puts counters on your team. The white one gives you a token creature. The red one does one damage. One damage is probably the best one from a vintage context. You could actually win the game if you put together a red combo. Does red change your opinion? You get some interesting things like um, Wild Cantor. <laughs> no, that- I, I mean, I think if I think it's a legitimate point to say that the one, the the versions of this cycle that cost four mana have more potential than the ones that cost five because four is more efficient than five and just but the ones that cost four are the ones that seem least likely to be abusive from them so they they correctly sussed out which ones were more dangerous and which weren't the red one is the one that's most likely to be a finisher because of its size and characteristics yeah well because the trigger is one damage to any target Yep. If you get your engine going with this and some other card, you this actually wins the game on its own. Agreed. The I blue like one this is the ab- one that's most likely to be an engine because it gives you material, but it right. won't win you the game. I like this ability. Um, I just don't know how to abuse it enough. Maybe one other way of approaching it is something where you've got like a bunch of, you know, like a Brian Kelly, uh, like twelve planeswalker deck. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Like where you have a bunch of planeswalkers and you can use this immediately and then start drawing off it. I just, yeah, just, <laughs> I don't see it. I, I wouldn't rule it out as being played, but I, I think it's very unlikely that any of these would be played. In this. The, the irony is of, over the years that there aren't very many one drops that have a, that require colored mana and are permanents, creatures mostly. There aren't very, very many of those that um, see play in vintage, just full stop. 
throughout all the years, you know, we talk about Delver, for example, and it, you know, it's one of the highlight examples. We talk about um, Deathrite Shaman. It's one of the highlight examples, but the list falls off precipitously after those. You've got Ragavan in the modern context, but frequently Ragavan's not a turn one play for complex reasons. And you've got lots of cheap spells, but they're either not creatures or they're not purely one drops. You know, the one drop creature is pretty rare space in the vintage context. There's really only those two, that is Ragavan and DRS, that see a lot of play right now. There's one drops in the Holovine decks, but they're not played because they cost one. They could cost 19 and they'd still be played for obvious reasons. I'm a yeah, zero. I, I'm a zero uh, on these, but I would love to see one see play. I'm I'm with you too. Maybe there's a clever interaction that we're not aware of yet that would push this into the playable spectrum, but uh, I'm going to go zero as well. Next up is one that we always have fun reviewing these kind of cards, Steve. <laughs> we're talking about cut down. And by it's, fun, <laughs> you mean frustration because they're just so hard to predict. Go ahead. <laughs> we're talking about cut down. It costs yeah. B. It's an instant. Destroy target creature with total power and toughness, five or less. Such a simple effect, right? We always go in for simplicity on this show. So give us I the wanna, comps, Kevin. Go yeah, I want to go on record and, and saying I think this is a vintage card. But that's a very loaded statement. So the next question is, what is this competing with? As you said, it's competing strongly, strongly, strongly with Fatal Push. And it's competing implicitly with Dismember, though not directly in many cases. As we've alluded to earlier in the show, there's plenty of Dismember decks that can't actually cast a Fatal Push or a Cut Down. The... The value of this, obviously, is its efficiency and its Swords to Plowshares impersonation. The drawback being, of course, the, the creature size. There are plenty of creatures that violate the conditions of this card in across many archetypes, in fact. If you look at something as simple as, uh, I don't know, Jeskai Control, right? You've got some targets. Lurish just barely qualifies. Ragavan gets hit by this and stuff. But Monastery Mentor dodges this as soon as there's one prowess trigger. You look at shops, right? Obviously, a lot of low-end low aggro stuff um, passes this test. The, your revokers and your, your small ravagers and your, your small ballistas. But look how hard it is to actually kill a ravager with this if they've got material on board. And never mind your lodestone golems and your golos, the bigger threats that dodge this completely. Fatal Push plays in the format much better because the, the threats that are large and played in Vintage tend to be played because they skirt costs. Lodestone Golem, as we know, in a workshop context is woefully under-costed, but it was designed for formats other than Vintage. And other effects like, um, I don't know, things that are mid-range threats like, say, Leovold, as an example, still targetable and killable with your Fatal Push because they're so efficiently costed. I believe that there, there are plenty of matchups or plenty of decks where Cut Down still hits a significant amount of targets, like... Out of bug, it still hits death right and oof and goif and a few yes. others. Like there's lots of targets here, and in the average game, you're probably going to have a target for this. Honestly, if you unless you brought it in against oath, but the um, the lack of flexibility, I would argue, is really rough on this card. You're going to be prevented from doing what you need to do more often, I think, than you are with fatal push. That's my initial assessment. All right, so I think that's a very good assessment. I think this card competes with um. What's the Phyrexian mana card we were just talking about? Dismember? Yeah, Dismember. Or... Okay. The, fundamentally, this poses a simple question. Would you rather pay one colorless and lose three life? Sorry, four, li four life? 
or would you rather pay one black for this effect? Because they're functionally very similar cards, right? Very. So I think, wildly enough, the answer is you'd rather pay colorless <laughs> in, in four life than black. I mean, that's just how valuable efficiency is. It's wild to think about. But if there's even one scenario where it makes a difference, right? You're going to want, I mean, in other words, like you have a, a spare mox, right? You'd rather have that for, pay that for life because you have plenty of life to spare. That's going to cut down on cut downs <laughs> usage. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that you're right. I think that there's a lot of room for these effects. I feel like Brian DeMars used to be an expert on this sort of effect. Like, what is the appropriate mana cost and parameters of just a straight removal spell in black? It's hard to imagine getting much better than this. I mean, this is sort of like Black's Plow. <laughs> it's wild, right? I mean, it really is. Well, uh, you know, you're true about it. You're right about its efficiency. And we'd be, I think, much higher on it, of course, if Fatal Push had never been printed. They they fight on different axes, naturally. This one is, I think, a bit more... Well, this one's a bit more fair in that it scales with the size of the creatures, but not their utility. Yes. In that, you know, like... a. Lodestone Golem is an interesting example because Lodestone Golem is <laughs> big and disruptive, which is something that stuff really shouldn't be. But again, Wizards doesn't design for workshop formats. Most creatures, even in the modern context, are either big or disruptive. Look at your um, your uh, Merktide regents, right? Not disruptive in any way, just enormous and incredibly efficient to cast. Neither that that card generally dodges both of these. I mean, it's possible to cast a Merktide regent that cut down can cast, but no one ever does it. The in the vintage context, though, we've got the full breadth of Magic's history combined with a few design mistakes, combined with a few corner cases because of shops and dredge, such that flex flexibility is key. Right? You you and I have said it so many times before. Flexibility is key. There really isn't anything that cut down gets you that Fatal Push doesn't. Well, it's the conditionality in Fatal Push. It's yeah, that's right. So long as you have reasonable reliable access to revolt which the format does for almost all fatal push decks uh, i played fatal push and i've i have played fatal push enough to find that reliable is a very it's a it's a matter of degree it's a scaling word. <laughs> well <laughs> then to your point here's the list oh by the way i'm i'm reading from an article we've there's been a lot of good community work on this this question by the way and Oracles of the Coast have an article titled Cut Down versus Fatal Push in Vintage. <laughs> so if you want some of the, the people crunch conclusion? the numbers. Well, <laughs> there's not much of a conclusion, but I want to read one segment that speaks directly to your point, because I think this might be conclusive. And that is creatures that cut down can always kill, but Fatal Push cannot without revolt. And that list includes Hull Breacher, Opposition Agent, Archon of Ameria, Urza, Lurus, Balustrade Spy, Undercity Informer, Foundry Inspector, and Brazen Borrower. I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> Cut down will always get those. But however, you need to hear a different list, though. You need to hear another list. Creatures that Fatal Push with Revolt or revo without Revolt can kill and Cut Down Cannot. can't. Vengevine, Oko's Elks, and Leovold. And add to that list conditionally um, uh, Constructs, Urza Saga Constructs. Wait, Vengevine? Yeah, Cutdown's never going to kill a Vengevine. It's, it's up to 5-5. Five, five. Oh or total power and toughness 5, I mean. So Hull Breacher and Opposition Agent are the biggest, and, and Archon of Emeria. Those are the biggest creatures Cutdown's ever going to kill. 
you can't kill a Vengevine. You also can't kill a Hollow One. I don't know why it wasn't on this list. Yeah, here. I was going to say, they, what about Hollow One? Well, it, it was it was a bit of an oversight, I think, on their yeah. part here. Vengevine and Hollow One, Hogak Two. So all the big threats. In fact, even the small threats, right? Like a buffed, wow. uh, a buffed um, uh, Rootwalla dodges cut down too. So, so here's the interesting thing, Kevin. Yeah. What that does so nicely is juxtapose the situational superiority and situational inferiority. Very much so. And what it does with such clarity is without doing it. I mean, it what it what it implies rather with such clarity is that some things matter more than others, right? <laughs> so exactly. what matters in both cases is not what they do. It's what they don't do that matters. That's really Correct. what's decisive. And I think what you just mentioned is that despite the conditionality of fatal push, the narrow scope on cut down is actually fatal. If you are really relying is. on you can't, yeah, if you're relying on cut down to answer bizarre threats, Kevin, yeah. If your opponent has a monastery mentor and they pump it once, you can't kill it. Kill it. Yeah, yeah, that's, I know. That is that's enormous. A, that is a fatal push. And I and I think that Ravager is a really compelling case too, right? Yeah. Ravager is always killed by a fatal push and will rarely be killed by a cutdown. Agreed. Now, are there corner cases where they don't have enough material or they sequence wrong and give you the you opportunity? Only need two artifacts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, those are the exceptions that prove the rule. Like you almost you can't rely on getting a Ravager with a cut down. You might cast it still in order to get rid of other permanents. Don't get me wrong, but it's not good. Um, also, to the flip side of what you said, Steve, is I, I think you were implying this, but you didn't specifically state it. And that is what's important for your deck to remove. If you need this spell to keep you alive against bazaars, then cut down does not do the job. If you need it to dodge critical disruptive factors like hull breacher and opposition agent then it does do the job right so if you're the kind of deck who's trying to thread a needle and just not lose to those those flash demure threats cut down's going to get the job Hull-breacher done for you is a three two Kevin. yeah total power and toughness less. of five cut it says or less or cut, less yeah this kills this kills a hull breacher. yeah cut down kills a hull so if you're if you're the sort of deck who gets to ignore bazaars conveniently or functionally ignore bazaars, yes. and you're trying to go much faster than them, then maybe, maybe then not being able to kill a, a Vengevine is not a problem. But if you're the sort of deck that folds to a whole Breacher or an Opposition Agent at the wrong time, ditto Archon of Ameria, then the, the pure reliability of Cutdown may be your answer. Do I think there are many decks that fit that description? No, I, I don't. But there could be. And for some players, they might identify their role in a particular matchup as hinging on their ability to interact with Hullbreacher or Oppo. And if those players are right in their identification of that, then that's great. That means Cutdown might be the right tool. Ditto if your realization is that you can't beat Leovold once it's in play, well, then you've got to go with Fatal Push. So yeah, I've I- flipped. I think that the, the <laughs> list of things that this misses is just too large. It, it, yeah. This does kill a Hullbreacher. I want to say that again. because I th- There's I a lot of value it. there. And for some decks, that's huge. Yes. But there's too much that's outside the scope of this. I'm going to say, I mean... Well, owing to your explanation from earlier, we're, you know, we're not predicting full replacement here. We're, we're predicting the lowest possible bar, which will someone play this and have success. And that's why I started things out by saying, I believe this is a vintage card, but I think it has really narrow applications. So, so what's your prediction? I'm simply going to go non-zero. I think someone in a... 
possibly Sultai, possibly Grixis Tinker kind of approach is going to is going to have this and be successful with it, but not much more. So I'm going to go with I'm going to go with two. I think that's a very reasonable prediction. Oh, that's pretty much what I was going to say. So no, I, <laughs> I don't. This is too marginal for me to just tie you up. So <laughs> I'll take I'll take the under. I'll go one. Okay, reasonable. Next, we have a card that is is a hybrid of two things we know well. This is Shadow Prophecy for 2B, instant. Domain. Look at the top X cards of your library, where X is the number of basic land types among lands you control. Put up to two of them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. You lose two life. So this is if strategic planning... No, not strategic... Yeah, strategic planning and Knight's Whisper and... um. Oh, what's that domain draw card that I can't remember the name of? It's, if those three cards had a baby. Allied Strategies was the card I was trying to think <laughs> of when I said... You yeah, had to go back a, to the original domain cards, yep. That's right. It's as if those three cards had a baby. You're looking at cards equal to however many land types you've got. You get up to two of them. That's the Night Whisper part, and you lose two life. But, the, but notably, the cards you don't get go into your graveyard. That's the strategic planning part. So... It's a little bit thirst for knowledge. It's a little bit dig through time if you're a multicolor deck, right? Because you're going to look it up to five, potentially. If you're Brian Kelly, you look at five. And then they go in your graveyard. So there's extra value to be had there vis-a-vis flashback and other resources. Importantly, thirst for knowledge is not really a vintage card right now. I'm doing a bit of a search here. Yeah, thirst for knowledge has not put up a tournament appearance in the last year. It's just no longer applicable in vintage. And there are plenty of good reasons for that, which we don't need to belie here. The th- Is this card better than Thirst for Knowledge? I would argue situationally. You'd have to have a significant investment in colors, but the sort of vintage decks that would cast a Thirst for Knowledge tend to have an investment of three or more colors. And so let's presume for the moment that your, your domain is three. So you look at three, you choose two, you put one into your discard pile. That's At instant speed, that's a pretty powerful effect. But it's also really grindy, really incremental. And Vintage isn't functioning that way these days. We're not playing a Goblin Welder, you know, jockey with your opponent to weld in something big kind of format anymore. We're playing a Tinker format. We're playing a a Breach format. We're playing a Doomsday format. So I think this card is fascinating and awesome from a historical context. Yet, ah, it's it's just, it it was born a decade too late to be playable in Vintage, (laughs) in my opinion. Maybe even two decades. I don't know. What do you think? Agreed entirely. I think this card has missed the moment. Do you think there's anything that could change that? Time machine. <laughs> well put. Well put. I, w- I do want to note that I think this card plays incredibly well with triomes. So if you're the sort of deck who's got a triome, then that facilitates this card better than better than most. But otherwise, yeah, I'm just going to go with zero on Shadow Prophecy. I like the historical context, that's all. Yeah. I really enjoyed playing. What was the card that we just read the... Not read the ruins, but the... Read the one, bones. Yeah, read the bones. I enjoyed playing with that. Maybe like what? God, yeah. probably like nine years. Oh, that reminds me. I'm glad you said something because um, this card also competes with painful truths. Yes. And yes. and that's a, an especially noteworthy comparison because two, one, it doesn't rec- the painful truths doesn't require you to actually have domain, so you can cast it off mm-hmm. Moxen. And two, you can actually scale up the draw with painful truths up to three on typically and beyond with weird scenarios. This card's never going to draw you three. Shadow prophecy is always going to hit two at most. So, um, yeah, Painful Truths is a pretty painful comparison for this card, too. Agreed. 
All right. Speaking of historical reference, this is one. This is right in your bailiwick, Steve. Electrostatic infantry. 1R. It's a dwarf wizard. It's a 1-2 normally. It has trample. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on electrostatic infantry. It's our newest vertical growing <laughs> threat. Yep. <laughs> That's right. So two mana, has some natural power and toughness of one, two, not bad. Has trample, noteworthy, restricted to instants and sorceries. What do you say? Well, I say it compares un- uh, poorly and unfavorably with virtually every vertical growing threat we have. I mean, it has trample, yes, but so does... Um, uh, kill was which is the one that has trample? Managorger Hydra. I Managorger think. Hydra. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is also has the power and toughness. I think reversed unfavorably, because <laughs> <laughs> because even if you activate it once, it doesn't protect it from a bolt, right? So you'd That's rather true. have a two one than a one two. Good call. Um, especially with trample. Um, this I think we've established that the horizontal growth is pretty much superior to the vertical growth. So yep. this is then inferior to young Pyromancer. Um, uh, I don't know what else to say. I mean, they're, it's, it's probably not even as good as a Quirion Dryad because, a, well, it is, it, it is any color, but a Quirion Dryad, you can play, what can you play that can pump a Quirion Dryad? At this point? Well, the tr- Quirion Dryad triggers off permanence. This is only instant no, and sorceries. that's not true. Quirion Dryad triggers off of, of blue, black, red, and white spells. Uh, yeah, but spells... Right. If you if you play Monastery Mentor, it triggers Quirion Dryad, and exactly. it doesn't trigger this. Yes, that's my point. So creatures. I was trying to figure out what spells are colored spells that will tr- trigger Quirion Dryad, but not this. <laughs> that's um, right. So creatures, I guess, um, and enchantments. Well, that's a weird thing. Um, yeah, and even weirder would be artifacts that have a color. There you go. So yes, there are enough things. Yeah, I think Quirion. Well. This might be better than Aquarian Dryad. Might be. By the way, I should... In a particular shell. What? In a particular shell, it could be. Yes. So, I classify Trample as a form of evasion. And in Mm -hmm. that regard, I think this is inferior to the um, Sprite Dragon. Because the Sprite Dragon, yes, it's blue, but it it can attack immediately. And um, that also has flying, which in many... Also... Importantly, Sprite Dragon triggers off non-creature, which means your Moxin, right? Like, <laughs> yes, that's so, that's big game. So that also is a vertical flying threat. Yeah. Um, does the Sprite Dragon keep the counters? I forget. Or is it just yes? Different? Yeah. yeah. It, yes. I haven't played with it in like a year. Unlike, I think you're reminded of Kiln Fiend, yes, right? yeah. which is temporary growth. Did Kiln Fiend have trample? I don't remember. No, it doesn't. It just has massive growth. It just yeah. gets plus three plus zero. Oh, yeah, but it has no <laughs> evasion. Otherwise, Often its stats it are the happen. same as this thing. It triggers off instants and sorceries. So Kiln Fiend is actually pretty comparable uh, you know, in the details to the electrostatic infantry, but not in practice. So I think you could say this is probably comparable to Aquarian Dryad, which is inferior to a Tarmogoyf. Tarmogoyf yeah. is what? I'm sorry? Tarmogoyf is probably the most comp, the best comp then, right? I mean, in, terms of, in terms of current play, yes, Tarmogoyf is probably the best comp. And, um, and Tarmogoyf, obviously, in the modern context, just comes down as a 2-3 or a 3-4 reliably. Agreed. Yeah, but it's it, it's it's very important to recognize that vintage is not is not a vintage you know, is what not protection not, from game. <laughs> it's not a Jace protection from game. Um, <laughs> it is it's not a rapid spell slinging format these days, in terms of instants and sorceries, right? 
you're not trying to play a threat and then chain together preordains and mana morphoses and, and other stuff to make it good. You're trying to have a threat that's immediately impactful and then protect yourself and disrupt your opponent and have that threat finish the game, much more in the aggro control style. For in, back in the Query and Dryad days, the kind of protection you had was part was implicit um, in that Query and Dryad just grew bigger than most of the threats of its day. But that is increasingly less true, obviously, and it, it can't compete. And it's, it's for the same reason that electrostatic infantry can't compete. Also, on the trample spectrum, you called out Managorger Hydra, which does just does a much jetter, better job of being the trampling threat than this thing does. Yeah, I like to talk about these for the historical context, and this goes on the ever-growing list of growing threats, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I, I'm going with zero. I assume you are, too. Yes. All right, last on our list is Gerard's Hourglass Pendant. For a single mana, it's a legendary artifact. It has Flash. If a player would begin an extra turn, that player skips that turn instead. And it has an activated ability. Four, tap, exile. Return to the battlefield tapped. All artifacts, creatures, enchantments, and land cards in your graveyard that were put there from the battlefield this turn. What a curious collection of abilities. This ability to stop uh, extra turns is the one that we have seen before. Remind me. I don't recall. We did review a card, didn't we? What's that card? Just a moment. There are two cards that have the phrase would begin an extra turn on them. They're Stranglehold, which is a very old commander card. For, it's red enchantment. But then more recently, Ugin's Nexus from um, Cons of Tar- Tarkir, which has this exact same text. If a player would begin an extra turn, they skip that turn. And it's a five mana artifact that says also if Ugin's Nexus would be put into a graveyard from the battlefield, instead exile it and take an extra turn. We absolutely reviewed Ugin's Nexus back in the Cons days, but that was many years ago. Um, this notion, so <laughs> it's kind of like a pithing needle on Time Vault, right? Like, yeah, it has splash damage against Time Walk, but there's no way you're going to play this for that reason. Um, it has flash, so you can kind of use it as a pseudo counter spell for Time Walk. That's slightly better. And a pseudo counter spell of the sort for Time Vault 2, in the sense that you could you can maneuver into a position where your opponent's activating it with their last mana and thinking that's the end of the game, and then you flash this in. All well, of that I, seems highly suspicious. I think this <laughs> card is <laughs> worth reviewing as an intellectual exercise for two reasons. Yeah. One is, it poses the question, and it's a very important question that I think is consistently answered in the negative, although not <laughs> un- universally, which is, if there's, a power, if there's an answer to a very powerful and deadly effect, but the effect is narrowly used is the is it worth employing the answer <laughs> right so yeah. like an example of where you get an effect that's so important or so central that you get sort of really narrow answers to it i'll give you a couple of examples so remember back in the height of flash combo where mm-hmm. people were using okay you've got four ley lines but we still need another answer so people were using ley line of sanctity of, of singularity as ley line of the void five through six right yeah. like hyper narrow you're not going to get much use out of it besides that, but it's there nonetheless. It was yeah. it prevented the uh, win condition with basically the sliver kill, but also... Um, you remember that, Kevin? I do. Another example, and that's also different because in that case, it's an it's an opening... It's, a, it's, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. The second example <laughs> yeah. of like a... of a narrow an answer to an important card is how um, Sulfur Elemental was used at the height of the Mentor. Period. Ooh, good one. Good one. Yeah. 
Yeah, incredibly specialized, incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Not narrow, yeah. but specialized. Yeah. Yeah, that sulfur so, elemental is a really good pull. I, I didn't think of that. So I think the question is, and again, it's generally answered in the negative, but there are occasions in which <laughs> these things appear, right? Um, so a couple just features I just want to highlight. One is that, okay, so basically in the contemporary vintage format, there's two ways to take multiple turns. It's time walk or time vault, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Number two, um, if you have, if you play this earlier, um, before your opponent tries to go for the time walk or the time vault, they're just not going to play their thing, right? They're not going to walk into it. <laughs> so to speak. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> so. That's, that's like the headline of this card. Don't walk into this. Right. <laughs> so, but, so, so the having flash is, is I think a tactical counter advantage, right? It's like, it's, it's like a, tactical response to that which is good so this needs to mm -hmm. have flash um but are you willing to have a card in your deck that does very little against everything else right because the ultimate playability hinges upon the final paragraph here which is essentially just flashing everything right uh, yeah it's, you're, you're paying a lot of mana four mana plus this which means if you played it that turn it's five mana to rebuy everything that you lost that turn yes which, from an incremental standpoint, is not worth it in Vintage, right? right? There's no amount of fetching and wastelanding that's worth five mana to buy back, I don't think. Uh, from a combo perspective, yeah, it's possible that you could construct a scenario where you've got a kind of um, eggs sort of deck that would get incremental value out of the rebuy here. Five mana is a lot, especially since we have three and four mana versions of that effect already that go unplayed. Yeah, it's like, imagine what kind of game state you're you're thinking about to really get this so number one might be something i don't know something where you can sacrifice a bunch of permanents to something and then activate this yeah maybe you can yeah. get this with like artificers intuition and you've sacrificed a bunch of things to the um oh god um <laughs> you know what i'm talking about the, like, are you talking about ironworks yeah like you've sacrificed something to ravager or something and you've um, yeah. and and you like artificers intuition this up and you play it and then you can get everything back Something like that. Yeah. Um, Ironically, this has a little bit of this effect, I should say, not this card maybe, but this effect has a little bit of game in decks like um, uh, Belcher, right? You got your Tinder Walls and your um, Wild Cantors, right? That are generating you mana. But the whole point of those decks is that once you hit four mana you win. or seven, you win. Yeah, you have no reason to do all this buyback business. Um, Ravager might be the best pull out of all the things you mentioned, I think, in terms of its... It's common in the format, and the sort of deck that might even consider playing this card is probably more likely to be a workshop deck in the sense yeah, but that... in that case, you've already got, you know, Revoker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. You're not trying to answer Time Walk, and you've got... You're already built in to answer Time Vault, so you don't really need this card. Um, the Sulfur Elemental example is a good one, I think. It's instructive in that taking extra turns is a ubiquitous effect in Vintage, but it is not the end game. It's not the target end state for nearly any deck that has it. it it's the B plan in the Tinker decks, I would argue, right? And uh, maybe B maybe B plus is the better way to put it. They're, they're trying to be Citadel decks, right? First and foremost, they're a Citadel deck. They have access to Key Vault to, to really close the game out, but Citadel is the thing that beat you, not the Key Vault, right? That said, it's, it's common, but it's not as ubiquitous as it was and as difficult to fight as it was for Mentor, right? Like, Key Vault is not hard to fight in Vintage. 
Every archetype has an answer to it, usually multiples, right? And workshop notwithstanding, right? You've got your, your revokers, as you said, you've got your null rods, you've got your needles. You can fight them in other ways. The decks that need to fight Key Vault don't need this card. It's not better than the things we already have to fight Key Vault. And it's not an include just for Time Walk. I mean, yes, Time Walk's valuable and powerful, but it's not worth having a dedicated card for all the reasons you said. So unfortunately, I don't anticipate this seeing play for all the reasons we've just said. Yeah. As a, as a, I agree with you. As a um, theoretical exercise, do you it's think you could construct a card that had most of these words on it, that, but you would feel differently about? Would it have to be a cantrip? Would I it have to it, be more like um, um, the lantern? Well, what's one? What sulfur elemental does though is it, it presents a threat, and it's then hard to answer because you can't plow it. So if this was True. on a body, maybe, or yeah. if this had some sort of in, like static effect to go along with it, I don't know. Um, yeah. What if this said it was flash? If a player would begin that end that turn, the player skips a turn in that stead. And what if this was a two-three creature? That would be interesting. Uh, or a three that would be interesting. Creature. That would play very well. Yeah. I mean, you probably have to cost it a little more, but what if this? What if? Um, what if this said it? Uh, if a player would begin that turn, extra turn, the player skips that instead. And it said, um, it "Said you take an extra turn." No, well, <laughs> that that that's a, that would be very interesting. Instead, you yeah. get the next turn instead. Yes. Or what if there was an additional line that was just unrelated? And it said something like, um, uh, uh, "One tap sacrifice, draw a card." Yeah, that's where I was going with the lantern example. Is if you yeah. could buy back the card advantage somehow, or the card disadvantage. I mean, yeah, I think everything you said there is totally reasonable. An alternate, an alternate body. Additional effects, a way to buy back the card disadvantage, that would be that would be good because this activated ability is just pretty out there for vintage. What if this activated? I know this is stressing things. What if this activated activated ability was free? What if it was just like Tormod's Crypt? Well, then it free would be buy everything back. You lost this turn because there's too many ways to generate to net mana out of that situation. Yeah, I think it works can, with Lotus. Yeah, yeah, you're crazy. Yep, you're right. It can't be free. Then it becomes a combo card and not yes. a stacks piece, though. Yeah, you could just br- keep bringing it back with, uh, yeah, some sort of um, a goblin welder type thing, and just <laughs> yeah. So this effect has to be costed more than a few mana. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. I think everything you're talking about is true, and the card we're looking for to actually fill that kind of gap is just basically a different card. The flash part is nice. The preventing turns is p- nice, but the combination of abilities you've got here isn't applicable for vintage, not at this cost. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our Dominaria United review. By way of review, we've predicted play for one, two, three, four cards. That is, in, but we didn't both predict play for these cards, so our report card's going to be fun. Anointed Peacekeeper, Karn Living Legacy, Karn Silex, which is the quote-unquote big winner, and Cut Down are the cards we've predicted play for. So I'm looking forward to our report card, but I'm always looking to forward to our report card, so that's not saying much. <laughs> me too <laughs> this was fun kevin <laughs> thank you for listening to episode 107 of so many insane plays you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com if you enjoyed our show please be sure to rate us on itunes so that other magic players can find us as always and until next time we wish you many insane plays
Game. <laughs> <laughs>